says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And Father, we humbly ask as we open the word of God this morning as an act of worship, continuing now to honor and worship you through the submission of our hearts and souls and minds and spirit to the very word of God you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be attentive and expectant to want to hear what the spirit of God would speak to us as the church assembled here this morning. We ask, Lord, help us to have an ear that's open and a heart that's receptive. And we pray as well that we wouldn't hear wiser, persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking personally to our hearts. Bless your word and speak to us now, Lord, especially as we begin this new study through a new book. And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, as your title may say over the top of this book we're going to look at, I think perhaps might be better called the Acts of the Holy Spirit uh, through the Apostles of Jesus Christ. Certainly it shows to us and it reveals the different acts and things that took place in the early church predominantly through the apostles but really as we go through this together we will see it is more specifically the acts of the very spirit of God working on the earth through the vessel and the instrument of the apostles of Jesus Christ the book of acts is basically a continuing narrative of where the gospel of Luke left off uh, it's sort of volume two, if you would. It records and reveals the beginning of the church age, which is the time period after Jesus ascended back into heaven, after his resurrection, when he ascended back to heaven, to the right hand of his father, where he had begun to come from, and then sent his Holy Spirit to the world to then begin to work on this earth through the life of his followers. And this historical book, and that's what we call the book of Acts, it's one of the historical books in the Bible, basically gives to us not a complete record of everything that happened in the early church. It really gives to us, you might say, better selected snapshots or uh, unique highlights the holy spirit highlights and takes snapshots of specific events and activities that happened during the first 30 years historically of what we know of as the early church and we should remember that as we go through it together it's not an exhaustive uh, description it's not a complete list of everything that happened but this is what the spirit of god determine for us to see as followers of Christ snapshots and quick little uh, you know highlights of different events and activities it's what God obviously wanted us to know about what happened in the early church it's what God wanted us to see the spiritual condition the experiences the activities the things that he wanted us to see about how the church was functioning 
how the people were serving Jesus during that time, what was the characterizing marks and the challenges that they went through, what things were happening in the life of the early church. That's why God gave to us the book of Acts. And these apparently were the things that God wanted us to know that we might have that awareness as the generation of the church that we live in today for our understanding. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are the narrative and the record of the life and the ministry and the teaching and the miracles as well as the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The book of Acts now becomes a vital link as we move forward of directly what happened after Jesus ascended back into heaven. Uh, it's the vital link really as well to all of the New Testament letters because if at the end of John's gospel you just had the book of Romans, you would wonder how did that church get started? How did Colossians get started? How did the, the church of Philippi get started? Well, the book of Acts is the vital link to all these New Testament letters written to churches and people and it reveals how the church was birthed and began in Jerusalem and then spread unto the known world it reveals to us how the spirit of God was working amongst the church and the world and in this book study God's going to reveal to us a couple things specifically I draw your attention to first of all we're going to see the power of the early church that the early church was marked with incredible power Jesus after ascending back to heaven leaves behind remember 11 really informally trained disciples he leaves behind 11 men Judas betrayed him 11 informally trained disciples we find in Acts chapter 1 that there's a, a congregation of followers of Jesus at this point that's a little over 100 people assembled together for prayer and worship and fellowship and from this limited group of genuine followers of Christ, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that in a matter of 30 years, they had impacted most of the known world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eleven informally trained disciples, a little over a hundred people in a congregation praying and meeting together in Jesus' name, and in 30 years, they impact the known world in that day. It tells us in Acts chapter 17 that even their own enemies said of them that they had turned the world upside down for Jesus. This small group of individuals, but yet how influential they were for the Lord, they powerfully impacted their society. They had a powerful influence upon the culture for the kingdom of God and cause of Christ. And let me say, remember, they did all of that without, without at all access and uses to much of what we have to utilize today in the modern church and many of the things that we utilize and we almost depend upon and think are essential to be effective for church life and ministry they were incredibly influential and very fruitful in the work of the lord without having think about it access to anything like radio tv video internet they had no access and usage to PA systems and modern technology. You know, they didn't have a great website. 
social media to utilize. They didn't have advanced marketing and advertising strategies of how to get the word out to the community and bring more people in. They had no professional signage. We don't see expensive modern buildings. And listen, I'm not saying that to be critical. I don't think any of those things in balanced use are wrong, but it's pretty amazing to see what they were able to do for the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and be very effective without any of that. Without any of that at all, how impactful and powerful they were. The early church began with a common group of people who were not formally educated nor formally trained in theology from seminaries or ministry from schools that were, were founded. It was Acts 4 says a group of unschooled, ordinary men who spent time together with Jesus that knew the heart of the Lord and were spending time with the risen Lord Jesus and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and there was great power at work amongst the early church. Indeed, I think something God help us to learn from for the church today. Notice also, we'll see as we go through, it's not only the power, but there's a really beautiful pattern that God leaves for us in the book of Acts regarding how the church, as I said, operated. How did they function? Uh, how do they seem to be, you know, interacting? What were they doing? And I think it resembles really what the church should have as its pattern. We'll see that it was really, honestly, for all they did, it was very simple. The early church, though very powerful, influential, healthy, and fruitful, was really quite simple in its operations and in its functions. It was not really that structured. It wasn't very complex in the way that they, you know, kind of organized themselves. There was no multi-level flow charts or sophisticated business models. None of that seemed to exist. Now, listen, I'm not saying the early church didn't have a measure of order to it. Acts 6, we'll see that and other places. There was an order to what they did. There was a, a measure of organization when it was required. What I see, however, in the book of Acts is they didn't establish organization unless it necessitated to. They didn't say, let's be organized and work our plan. They, on occasion, in Acts 6, said, okay, things are starting to get a little bit more difficult to manage. We need some structure now. We need a little bit of structure to be good stewards. And they would add structure as it was necessary, not overly organize and structure things and try and work a business model and kind of you know, operate like a business. And sadly today, let's just be very honest, in America today, in the American church, it seems that we have replaced the simplicity of perhaps what God intended church life to be. Things like, imagine this, worshiping Jesus, studying the word of God, prayer, loving fellowship among God's family, interacting, ministering to people, doing outreach and evangelism. And it seems we've replaced much of that simplicity for lots of programs all types of formulas, business structure, ideas of church growth, entertaining experiences, making sure it just, you know, exhilarates people whenever we do things, that we do things to make sure it's very engaging and entertaining and lots of social activities. And, and the question we have to ask is, is all this complexity that we brought to church life, is it really helping? Is it really causing us to say, wow, we are seeing similar things? I think the book of Acts gives a very healthy revelation uh, of the pattern 
that's laid out of what the early church was like and things I think that we may learn from as well. One final thing before we jump into our verses together as well, I think you see is, and this is important and we'll see it, is there also were problems in the early church. It is very evident when you read the book of Acts because people say, oh, where's the power, man? They were that early church. They were so, and people almost glamorize the early church. As if somehow it was this powerful, wonderful, pure thing with no problems. Come on, read the Bible. There were problems in the early church. There were problems internally with people. They were facing problems and opposition. You see this in the book of Acts as we go through it. We'll see that. In the New Testament letters that were churches that Paul planted and pastored and that then began to be, again, the first 20, 30 years of, of church history, which we see here, Paul's always writing corrective things in letters. He's dealing with issues and problems because there were issues among the churches. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when Jesus writes letters to churches, seven letters to seven churches, what does he do? He points out and identifies the different problems that existed in those different churches. And I think it's important for us to realize that the church is made up of saved people, yes, but we're all still sinful. We're all still flawed and we're imperfect people growing and developing spiritually. And the church is supposed to be a family. More than that, it is supposed to be like a big family hospital with sinful, hurting people who all need some help. This, the church, what we call the body of Christ, the gathering of the Lord's followers, this should be a place of love and grace where people can learn the truth where they can gradually change by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is intended to be, listen, a grace community. That's what the church is supposed to be, a grace community, where people who've been saved by the grace of God are extending and enjoying the grace of God and by the grace of God growing and as flawed people becoming more Christ-like as we assemble together to seek and worship him. Well, look with me in verse one. Let's begin working our way through the book of Acts together. It says here, verse one, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, he says, until the day in which he, Jesus, was taken up or ascended. So notice, we're introduced to who the human author we'll see from this is and we're given insight actually as to why he wrote this particular book in the events of the early church called the book of Acts. He says there in verse 1, the former account I made. Now we're going to see this is a reference to Luke. He says, for you Theophilus of all Jesus began to do and teach. Now that clearly identifies and we'll, we'll see this and talk about it that this is Luke the physician who was a medical missionary that traveled around with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, that was the one that compiled this same historical book we call the book of Acts. The same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke that we have prior to this, he wrote that. And in his opening address, that's what he means when he says there, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all Jesus began to do and teach. If you'll hold your finger there, or if you don't want to, I will for you. Luke chapter 1, let me read you the beginning of Luke's gospel, and this is how we know scriptures, the best commentary for scripture. Luke chapter 1, listen to how Luke opens his gospel that he wrote in the very beginning, the first four verses. Luke 1 says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to set in order a narrative of those things which have been 
fulfilled among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them delivered them to us he says it seemed good to me verse 3 also having had a perfect understanding of things from the very first to write to you an orderly account most excellent Theophilus that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed so notice we see here Luke referencing the same man who he addresses Acts to Theophilus and we see here that Luke the physician wrote the gospel of Luke he wrote it to the same man we're told there that he wrote it to the most excellent Theophilus he refers to there in verse 3 Luke 1 3 and most excellent refers to the fact that probably that Theophilus was some sort of a dignitary or a nobleman that's sort of a title interesting the name Theophilus itself actually means lover of God and it's very likely that Luke who we know was a physician from the scriptures very likely that Luke was actually a servant of this very wealthy man or dignitary who he calls the most excellent Theophilus and he says I'm writing out this account for you regarding the things about Jesus's life he was writing a personal record or account for Theophilus and it's likely that Luke was a servant of Theophilus as a physician here's an interesting sidelight in that day physicians typically were servants they were owned slaves of those who were masters so if you were a wealthy person and you saw a servant or slave that had an aptitude for learning they looked very smart you would put them through medical training and get them trained and then they would basically work for you as your own personal physician you owned your own doctor that would be great today wouldn't it probably be cheaper than most medical insurance that's for sure if you have kids and pay medical bills you're saying that would be way cheaper own my own doctor and in that day that's typically how doctors did serve they were usually servants of masters and it's very likely that Luke being a very smart educated man as he refers to him or uh, yeah, Luke basically for Theophilus Theophilus had an interest in Jesus or maybe he was already a follower of Jesus Luke did extensive research put together a compilation of the life and ministry and teaching and miracles of Jesus wrote it all down and that's where the gospel of Luke found its origin as he put this record together for this one man his boss Theophilus to know more about it and then at some point Theophilus very likely released Luke and maybe we don't know could have even financed him to go out as a medical missionary to serve with the Apostle Paul as he went around church planning and doing things that he was doing and now many years later Luke again does more research and he puts together another compilation this time as I said sort of volume two because that's what Acts is it's like the sequel to Luke's gospel or volume two the same man puts together another volume maybe a sort of like an update or newsletter to send back to his boss because he's been out on the mission field to give him a record of the things that happened during the first 30 years of the early church now as I just consider that the writing of Luke's gospel and then the book of Acts written by Luke for this man who was probably his boss uh, very likely Theophilus keep in mind what that means that Luke wrote his gospel and he wrote the book of Acts not for a group of people 
not because he knew he was writing a Bible book and that it would be included in the bestseller. He wrote all those things. He did that research, took the time to write out these helpful spiritual truths for one man, for one person. And God seeing the heart in that, God taking note of what he was doing and how meticulous and God by the Spirit of God used that heart that Luke had to minister and write those things that were helpful for one person and God used that and generated two books that we now have very valuable in the Word of God. I'll tell you, that teaches you and I something this morning. You never know how ministry for one person can be incredibly expanded by God. You never know. Something you may say or do or write for one person, God may take that and multiply and expand it and bring great things. Well, turn back to Acts 1 if you turn with me. Acts chapter 1. We now have a a kind of understanding what's being said, therefore, when Luke in verse 1 says, the former account, my gospel, Luke, I made for you, O Theophilus. Notice again, he says, verse 1, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. So he says, Theophilus, as I write you now this second volume, he says, the writing of my gospel, that was to tell you everything Jesus began to do and teach before he was taken back to heaven. Now, the fact that under the Holy Spirit's direction, Luke tells us that his gospel was all that Jesus began, key word, began to do and teach That indicates something, that the ministry of Jesus has not come to an end. He says, my gospel, that was just about what Jesus began to do and teach. He's purposely indicating that Jesus began ministering when he came the first time to this earth, but Jesus hasn't stopped ministering. Jesus hasn't stopped doing things. Jesus has not stopped teaching and speaking to people. Jesus was and is still doing things among people because he's alive he's just ascended back into heaven but the risen lord jesus who ministered in a body of flesh as a man on this earth is still to this day ministering to people he's still helping people he's still able to heal people he's still able to save people and change and transform lives jesus is still doing things just like he did when he was in the days of the gospel records and jesus is still teaching He's still speaking to people in powerful ways and communicating. The gospel records only tell us what Jesus began to do and teach. What he started doing, what he started teaching. Today, Jesus is still working. Now he's working through his followers, through the spiritual body of Christ that now has become indwelt by the presence of Jesus spiritually. And so the ministry of Jesus continues in the church age. How exciting to know and to have faith that Jesus still wants to do things. That we can read the gospel records and see what Jesus was doing and how he was ministering and to know that's all that Jesus began to do. But Jesus hasn't ceased doing things. And Jesus still wants to do things like he did in the gospels. He still wants to serve and minister and change lives and help people. And how wonderful to know and expect that Jesus still wants to teach and to be our teacher and the one that would speak to people, that he still wants to communicate even as he did while he was on the earth. So if Jesus rose from the dead and has now been taken back up into heaven, the ascension, the question becomes, 
Well, how does Jesus then still do things? If he ascended back into heaven, how does he still do things on this earth? How does he still teach? The answer, through the Holy Spirit working in the lives of his followers. Do you see what verse 2 says as it goes on? Until the day in which he was taken up, after, after that point, he, Jesus, now, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke indicates that Jesus carried on his work in ministry in the early church just like he predicted he would. Remember John 14, 15, 16, there Jesus kept telling his disciples who would one day become his commissioned apostles to carry on his ministry for him when he went back to heaven. He kept telling them, remember in those chapters of John's gospel, that a spiritual change was coming. Remember, he would tell them, look, I'm going to depart. I'm going to be leaving. And this was bothering and concerning him. What do you mean you're leaving? You For three years, we've really depended upon you a lot. You, you lead us. You teach us. You solve all our problems. You provide what we need. You, you minister to people. And now you're saying you're going to die and, and that you're going to depart and go back to heaven. But what did Jesus keep saying? But I'm sending a replacement. I'm sending to you a divine replacement, he says, that will help you. And that, of course, was the third person of the Trinity, the person of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus and the Father would send to earth after Jesus returned to heaven to now indwell and empower each individual follower of Christ as they embrace the Lord as Savior for their lives, to help them live for the Lord and serve effectively. Jesus said in John 14, let me remind you of his words. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to my father and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be noticed in you. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. So Jesus said, yes, I'm going back to heaven, but I'm not going to leave you orphaned on the earth, abandoned all by yourself. I'm going to come back to you. Well, wait a minute. You're going, you're coming. Are you, who's on first? What's on second? What, 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 and Jesus said, I'm going to come to you. How did he come to them? Through the person of the spirit. Jesus would no longer be with them bodily, physically, like he was when he lived on earth and ministered among them. He would now be with his followers spiritually through the person of the Spirit. John 14, 26, Jesus said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. John 16, he said, I have many things to still say to you. But you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and tell you things to come. That's why we read there in verse 2 that after Jesus was taken up, his way of ministry changed. And now, notice, Jesus, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit on earth and among his church, was now giving commands and instructions through the Spirit now. What happened is a transition. The Spirit would now speak to them and tell them what Jesus desired for them to do. It would be the Spirit of God 
that now was the way in which they would relate as they're now learning and walking in the Spirit and being led of the Spirit. Jesus would empower the apostles, empower his followers by the Spirit to enable them to do the things he wanted them to do, to say the things and teach the things he wanted them to say and teach. So Jesus would now work in their lives, guiding them by the Spirit. And one clear mark we will see as we go through the book of Acts, for sure, is the early church was guided by the Spirit. One of the very evident marks of the early church is the affairs and ministry of the church were being directed by the Spirit of God. That it was the Spirit that was leading them and guiding them. And today, I think the same ideal pattern should still be aspired to as we see in the purest form in the book of Acts in the early church. That we would seek to be commanded and instructed and guided and directed Regarding what Jesus wants us to do, how? By the Spirit of God. That we would let the Holy Spirit direct us into what Jesus wants to do and how Jesus wants to speak. That we would learn how to let the Holy Spirit lead our lives. Remember Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 when he wrote to the seven churches? He had one repeated refrain for every church. It was this, he who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Hey, so important for us today to learn how to be led by the Spirit of a God. As a Christian, ask yourself this morning, are you really seeking to grow in what it means to be led of the Spirit? Letting the Spirit of God direct you and guide you as to what the Lord wants you to do and what maybe He doesn't want you to do. Learning how to be led of the Spirit as to what you're supposed to say and what you're not supposed to say. Learning to be led of the Spirit in regards to when and where you're to go. And as a church, are we seeking to be led of the Spirit or are we seeking to just come up with ideas from our human spirit and then ask God to bless it? God, help us to seek to be led of the Spirit as they were in that design of the early church. You know, the book of Acts, we're going to see almost 60 references to the work and leading of the Spirit. Listen to this quote from A.W. Tozer. Fantastic on this particular subject. Listen to what Tozer said. And again, keep in mind, uh, this is going back probably a few decades, he said this. A.W. Tozer said, If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Man, that is a fitting, fitting quote in regards to what God's word is conveying to us here. Now, referring, of course, to these apostles who Jesus had chosen and was now directing by the Spirit to carry on his ministry, verse 3, referring to the apostles, says, to whom he, Jesus, also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So notice, Luke tells us here, verse 3, what Jesus was doing in, we might say, this gap period between the day that he rose back from the dead and the time period 
which was about 40 days long, the Bible says here, before he then ascended back into heaven from where he originally came before he came into this world to live amongst us as a man. After his suffering and resurrection, it says, Jesus, verse 3, presented himself alive by many infallible proofs, it says, being seen over a 40-day period. So Jesus, for over a month before he ascended back into heaven, was making purposeful appearances to prove that he was back alive showing up and presenting himself in his resurrected body to validate that he had overcome death just as he predicted and claimed that he would. He purposely was making efforts to present himself, it says, by many infallible proofs. That is much convincing evidence. Jesus would show up and he would talk with people. He would let people embrace him so that they could clearly see that he wasn't just a ghost or a mirage or a, a figment of their imagination, but that he literally had a body, that he was real, that it truly indeed was him who had come back to life from death. He'd eat meals together and spend time with them. And he was doing things to give unmistakable proof. For 40 days, he hung around. I would think as soon as the resurrection was done, Jesus, I am out of here. I mean, I spent three years here. People spitting on me, you know, falsely accusing me. As, you know, right away, resurrection, get me out of here, Father. But he spent 40 days, over a month, purposely, by many infallible proofs, seeking to convince and assure and verify to all of his followers, I'm alive. I am back from the dead. I overcame the death process. And we read of many of these occasions where Jesus would present himself alive at the end of all four Gospels. One of the most popular post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, I think, when he really showed himself to be alive, is with Thomas in John chapter 20. And many of us know that. Remember, it says that that same day on the evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said, Peace, peace be with you and when he said this he showed them his hands inside and the disciples were glad when they saw the lord and jesus said peace to you as the father has sent me i also send you and when he said this he breathed on them and said receive the holy spirit and when jesus breathes on you and says receive the holy spirit it happens so he shows up, he just steps into a locked room. They're in a locked room, terrified. And with the door shut and locked, the door doesn't have a knock. And then Jesus, he just shows up right in the midst. And he shows them his wounds, the marks of his passion from where he was crucified and suffered for our sins to show them that it was truly him risen from the dead. He breathes on them, commissions them that he's going to send them. And then, of course, as John 20 goes on, it says, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. He skipped church that day. Not a good idea. Missed a really great meeting. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas, notice, now he's struggling with his faith because he wasn't there. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, Thomas said. And after eight days had passed, the next week, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood in the midst again and said, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. 
Look at my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Now, I I love this account, particularly John 20, because it shows how what Jesus was doing, he would step in and out of the eternal dimension. So over this 40-day period, Jesus would step in and out of the eternal dimension and into the temporal dimension. They'd be in a room, assembled together, hanging out, and then all of a sudden the doors locked, they're afraid for fear of the Jews. Jesus would just show up in their midst, just boom. He'd just step out of the eternal dimension and spiritual dimension and right into the natural physical realm. And he would talk to them, he would say things. And as well... Jesus apparently is proving that he was fully aware of everything that happened among them even when they didn't see him in their midst at the moment. Think about it. They have this meeting. Jesus shows his scars. They tell Thomas, who wasn't present, Thomas, you missed it, man. Oh, of all the worship meetings, dude, you missed it. He came. He showed up. He's alive. He showed us the prince and and Thomas is hearing on this and and he kind of you know says oh come on this is, are you guys sure I mean I, unless I see it myself unless I can see the nail prints and touch it myself with my own hand I want to be able to see it tangible evidence so a week goes by eight days later there they are gathered again now Thomas is with them Jesus shows up and what's the first thing he does he says Thomas go for it try it Thomas touch me see for yourself stop being unbelieving believe now you have to imagine Thomas and the disciples have to be thinking how does he know about that he wasn't there when we had that conversation and what's Jesus trying to convey to them oh yes I was you didn't see me with the physical eye you didn't see but I was in your midst just because you don't see me with a physical eye anymore doesn't mean I'm not alive doesn't mean that I'm not in your midst. Jesus heard and saw everything that went on. And rather than returning to heaven, he spends 40 days like this training his followers, what? To realize that though they didn't see him physically, that he was still very much in their midst, aware of all that's happening, seeing everything. He's always available to step in and help as needed. And he was among them spiritually. And he wanted his followers to be what? Conscious of the presence of the Lord to always be conscious of the presence of the Lord being with them and the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever which means this he desires the same for his followers today he desires the same for the church today that we like his disciples he sought to train for those 40 days would experience Jesus showing himself to us in a personal way That even as Thomas had a personal encounter, even as many people, Jesus showed up and it says there in verse 3, he would present himself alive. He would show himself to people. Do you know what? That's still the heart of Jesus. Jesus today still wants to give people their own encounter with the Lord and to prove to them that he's alive and that he's real. And that people would recognize with infallible proof, listen, I don't need nobody to tell me nothing. I met the Lord. He's alive. He's real. I know what he revealed to me. I know what he did in my life. And Jesus longs that people today would have the same experience. And I think just like that day as well, he wants us to be conscious of his presence. 
that we would genuinely know, hey, when we get together, the Lord is in our midst. We may not see him with our eye, but he's amongst us. He's with us. He's aware that we live with that consciousness. Well, Luke also says in verse 3 there what Jesus would do during these times when he would show up and reveal himself. Do you see what it says, verse 3? It says that what he would do is that he would be speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So when Jesus would show up and reveal himself to people, what was his primary thing to do? It says he would speak to them about spiritual truths, eternal things. He would speak to them about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a reference to the coming kingdom age. When Jesus will return back to this earth a second time and set up his righteous kingdom and rulership and he will reign upon this earth for a thousand years with his followers and harmony and peace will be restored upon this sinful fallen planet and the kingdom age will be ushered in. it will be like an Eden experience once again as Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years upon this planet in that kingdom age and then to the end of that then bringing us ushering us into the kingdom of heaven and the new Jerusalem and an eternal abode with the Lord forever. But what I want to draw your attention is these glorious experiences, what? Talking about the kingdom of God, that's what Jesus saw important to speak to people about. He saw, hey, what I need to talk to my disciples about is about the kingdom of God. And today among the church, I believe Jesus, again, still desires to speak about the same things. And I think, truly, that during our worship gatherings, if we want to hear from Jesus, it can't be messages about self-help ideas of how to live a happy life. It can't be current events and cute stories. Rather, we need messages from the Word of God pertaining to the things of the kingdom of God. Because that is what Jesus spoke to those that he revealed himself to. And I believe it's kingdom things, spiritual and eternal matters so that we might hear those things from the Lord and know how to live for the Lord and how to relate to the Lord as we navigate our way through this life, having the values and priorities that we should. Now, uh, glance with me if you will. Let's quickly look at verses 4 through 7. We're not going to spend an exhaustive time, but they build to where we're going next week. Look with verse 4, what it says there. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this describes one of those occasions when Jesus, as we just read, appeared to his disciples, spent time with them in his resurrected body, spoke with them about spiritual and kingdom matters. And this connects, as I said, with what we'll look at next week regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. On this one occasion, Jesus, it says there, verse 4, commanded his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, it says, for a promise from the Father. Now, remember, Matthew 28, Mark 16, tells us that Jesus' command to his disciples was what? Go into all the world. Preach the gospel, he said. Make disciples. And after giving them this commission to go and preach and teach and make disciples, he then said to them, but wait, don't go yet. Because there is still something that you need and you're not ready until you receive that. He tells them, wait for the promise of the Father, 
which you've heard from me. Now, when Jesus says that, we read there in verse 4, wait for the promise of the Father, which you've heard from me, Jesus says. He's referring to a discussion that happened in Luke 24, where Jesus said this in Luke 24 to his disciples. Listen, he said, it is written and necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And then he said, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Jesus said, wait, because what you still need is a spiritual experience where you would receive divine power from heaven where you would receive heavenly power and enablement where the Spirit of God will equip you for service for Christ. Jesus wanted them to understand, listen, this is imperative, that education was not enough. They were well educated. They, they had Jesus teach them for three years. Training for ministry was not enough. They were well trained. They ministered side by side with Jesus for three years. And Jesus is saying, training, education, it's not enough. You need power from heaven. You need spiritual, supernatural enablement to effectively preach and minister and share me with the world. They needed to wait in prayer for this promised gift of power to be supplied to them. And Jesus describes it to illustrate in verse 5. He says, in the same way John baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now so Jesus likens it to John's baptism with water that water baptism identified a life change a person would consciously let themselves what be immersed or submerged in water and and when that would happen their body would be completely saturated by the water again next Sunday when we water baptize people their condition changes when they come back up from being under the water they start out in one condition dry and when they come back up out of that water, they're, they're completely saturated and soaking wet. You can't hide that they were baptized, right? It, when, when somebody's baptized, you look at them, you hug them and what? You get wet. Hey, congratulations, you get wet. In other words, what happened to them influences you and what happened to them is evident and obvious something happened to them. They look completely different. Makeup running down their face, you know, and they just look different. Something happened. An experience happened. And Jesus is saying, in that same manner, we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He had a plan that in the next few days, he was going to bring a powerful spiritual experience upon their lives. Something that would bring supernatural power from heaven where the Spirit of God would baptize them into the things of the Spirit. These people who were already indwelt with the Spirit would have the Spirit of God clothe them and come upon their life in power for service effectively for Jesus. Quickly, verse 6 and 7 before we close. And Jesus says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? The reason they're asking that is in the Old Testament, the outpouring of God's Spirit and the kingdom of God were often likened together. They were often tied together in the Old Testament. Isaiah 32, Joel 2, Zechariah 12. These are all passages that do that. So that's the reason for their curiosity. They hear about this outpouring of a Spirit. And they, 
wow, does that mean you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? And understand, to the Jew, that was their primary concern. When's the Messiah going to come and restore the kingdom, the promises that God has given to his chosen people Israel, which he will fulfill? They're saying, Lord, is this the time? Are you going to do it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to us? It's interesting. They were very concerned about understanding the plan of God. Jesus is concerned about them experiencing the power of God. They're saying, Lord, we've been waiting for this. Is now the time? Is this when you're going to do it, Lord? Are you going to restore the kingdom and the promises to your chosen people, Israel? We're ready. Are you going to fulfill your plan now? Which reminds me much how we so often are. So often, what are we preoccupied with? The plan of God. Lord, are you going to do your plan in my life now? When's your plan going to happen? Is now the time? Are you going to fulfill your plans in my life now? We want to know when God's plan is going to come to pass. And Jesus answered and says to them, it's not for you to know, verse 7, times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus says, listen, it's not necessary for you to know the details about my plan. I'm going to bring about the plan. The kingdom will be restored to Israel. God will bring about his plan and purpose. But Jesus says, you don't need those details right now. You don't need to know the exact time and season when the plan will unfold. They did not need to understand and know the plan of God at that time period. What they needed was to know and experience the power of God for the period of time that they were living in. They needed power to fulfill God's current plan, which was to go out and be witnesses. And can I leave you with this exhortation this morning today? Maybe it's not necessary for you to know everything about God's plan. Maybe you don't need to know everything about God's plan. Maybe what you need more than anything is to learn more about experiencing God's power. God's power for this season so that you can fulfill his purpose for the season you're currently living in. And if you want to know about that, you got to come back next week. Let's stand. Let's pray together.